Hello, everybody, and happy Thursday. Katie and I did something a little bit different this week. We were invited by a company in the Northeast to help them celebrate Pride Month. So we did a miniature version of our show live for them on Zoom. So this week's episode is a Pride celebration. So the sound might be a little bit different. And also we're responding sometimes to things that they're saying in the Zoom chat. But all the information and the format is the same as our normal show. Happy Pride. So everybody, thank you um, for coming. This is uh, put on by AW Pride and AW Women's Network. And I'm so excited to have um, Allie and Katie Greenwood with us here from Herstory on the Rocks podcast. And without further ado, I'm just going to let them take it away and do their thing. And thank you so much for being here. All right. Well, thank you for having us. We're really excited to be here and to tell you these really fun stories of these cool women. So Yeah. Um, so we're going to tell you a little bit about how our show works and what it is in case you've never listened before so that that way um, you're ready to really jump in because this is going to be a mess. Yeah. <laughs> like every week and this week we can't edit ourselves. So, uh, mm-hmm. so we'll see how it goes. But <laughs> And also typically as those who listen know, we ramble for about three hours. So mm-hmm. we are going to be bam, bam, bam <laughs> on the way. Okay. So this is Herstory on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, as we said, we're drinking the entire time. Um, so maybe some mishaps and slip ups and we're just going to have a good time. <laughs> and we're also not historians. So yes. we may <laughs> mispronounce names. Times in history. Get dates wrong. Yeah. We don't know. Mm-hmm. We try our best, but, you know, Wikipedia has its faults, so. <laughs> it does. So what's going to happen is I'm going to tell Katie a story and give her a cocktail, and then she's going to tell me a story and give me a cocktail, and then we're going to compare these two women from very different times and places this yes. week. But they do have one important similarity that we'll get to. They have faces. Yeah, faces. That's they have it. faces. So... <laughs> So because you might not have a Googling ability at the moment, we want you to have a picture of these women in your head while we're telling their stories. So we're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing the famous Grecian poet Sappho. And truth be told, nobody knows what she looked like. We have... (laughs) Literally no idea what her physical appearance was. Um, Everything is just a representation that happened either 2,000 years after she lived or 100 years after she lived. Nothing while she was alive. So what we know is she was a Grecian woman. She's always depicted wearing robes and holding a lyre, which is kind of like a small handheld harp. And then there's one quote in one poem that says, while her hair is now white... It used to be black. Hmm. So she did age. Okay. Like a normal person. Very good. Who are you doing <laughs> and what does she look like? So I am doing Harlem Renaissance superstar Gladys Bentley. So Gladys Bentley is this just tall, large 
prominent black woman. She has very short, close cropped hair and a round face with these kind of long, thin eyebrows that were very in style at the time. Mm. She has this like luminous, soft skin. Like her skin is just glowing all the time. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and just a gorgeous, bright smile. Um, but her most prominent feature is her outfit. She was typically seen in a white tuxedo, complete with a bow tie and top hat, like dressed to the nines. Now, I'm a spiller, so white tuxedo <laughs> is not a good choice. No, that's why I only drink white wine at weddings. It's mm. just a safe bet. Mm. It is safe. <laughs> you don't want to spill on the bride. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but also... Oh, are you still going? No, that's not. Oh, okay, I'm done. Good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> also, because we're a different format tonight, feel free to utilize the chat. You can put some gifts in there. You can fact check us if you want. <laughs> we don't mind. Um, because whatever we get wrong, somebody's just going to fact check us on Twitter later. Yep. And it'll be terrible. But we uh, have some drinks to get we to. We do. Do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. So this is called A Fragment Worth Waiting For. And it's two ounces of gin, one half ounce of fresh lemon juice, a half an ounce of simple syrup, and an olive on a toothpick. Mm, looks delicious. Cheers. Cheers. And I hope some of you are drinking. You don't have to <laughs> don't drink. Have to. We make mocktails as well sometimes, mm. not often. Uh, this is how I want a martini to taste. That's why I did it with the olive in it. It tastes so good. Like... I want to be classy and drink martinis, but I just can't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm really bad at mm -hmm. it. I want a martini um, with the long cigarette, like, and I just want to hold it like this. Exactly. But we'll unfortunately, I'm, I'm not we'll brave there. enough. Okay. <laughs> what do you know about Sappho? I know that she was, like, a poet. I know, I think she was, like, exiled for being a lesbian. And I want to say, like, you know, we don't like to label people in history, but, like, there's, like, no doubt in people's mind that she was, like, definitely into women. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And... That's really, like, all I know is that she was a poet and is, like, the great-great-great-grandmother of lesbian poetry. Yeah, lesbianism in general. Yeah, exactly. Really. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to get into Sappho's story. If anybody listening has any facts that they know or think they know about Sappho, feel free to type those in the chat. Thank you, Katie, for thinking the drink is delicious. <laughs> this Katie, not you, Not me, Katie. So, our story is going to start in the 10th century, even though she was born way before that, because this is where we first pick up some of Sappho's story. Um, the Byzantines had this encyclopedia called the Suda, and it's from, um, you know, a thousand or so years after Sappho lived, but it has two entries about Sappho in it. And the thing about it is we don't know how much of it's actually true. Mm. Some of it is historic information that's been handed down. Some of it is like myths and mythology. Um, some of what we know about Sappho is things that people have said about her later on. And then some of it is things that have been gleaned from her actual poetry. However, um, she was a commissioned poet most of the time. Like she made a good amount of money being a poet. So she would show up and perform at people's birthdays and weddings and parties. So she isn't as biographical as, say, a Taylor Swift. So sometimes we're guessing about what exactly she's writing, whether it's about her or whether it's about other people in general or love in general. Mm. But most of her commissioned work is about weddings. So we at least know how she felt about love, regardless of whether it was about her love or someone else's love. So, 
she is born in the 42nd Olympiad, which I don't know what the hell that means. So I had to Google that. And it turns out that that's somewhere between 612 and 609 BC. Okay. So time goes backwards. Time goes backwards okay. on that side of the timeline. Always fucks me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> backwards. Um, so about 2,500 years ago, a okay. little more than that. Um, and hmm, where was I with that? Oh, the translation could see we're already drinking. The translation <laughs> in when she was born could have been when she was at the height of her career or could have been the actual year she was born. So not sure. Other things we're not sure about. There's eight different men that have been listed as her father. Um, we think her mother's name was Cleus. And we think she had some brothers. Here's why we think those things. There's lots of different plays and writings throughout history that continued to list her as the daughter of somebody important. Usually if a woman is famous, they like to link them back to a famous male. But we just don't know if any of them were actually her dad. In terms of her mother being Cleus, she at some point wrote in a poem about a daughter named Cleus. And in Greece at that time, you would name your daughter after your mom. So it would, like, every other generation, your family hmm. would have the same female names. Huh. And I guess only your first daughter, because if you had multiple, I don't know. I feel like the Egyptians just named all their kids the same names. So. That's true. <laughs> Who knows? And the uh, English. Yeah. <laughs> William, and Mary, James. Henry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, her mom could have been this woman named Cleus that we don't know anything about. And then um, she did have three brothers listed. But... We didn't find a poem about them until 2014, so we're not really sure. We're finding stuff all the time. But the important things that we do know are, A, a lot of the writings about her have her surrounded by women, constantly surrounded by women. And she lived famously on the island of Lesbos, which is also where the original Wonder Woman was set. Um, but that's in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. And she was most likely born in this town called Mytilene and lived there for the entirety of her life. Now, we know she was always surrounded by women, but oftentimes, even women who were in same-sex relationships, they still needed to get married or prosper in um, a relationship with a man in order to have money. She didn't really need that because she was a famous poet making a lot of money. So the Suda connects her to two men. One of them, we're pretty sure, is a joke, and one of them people made up to make her look uh, unstable. So the first guy she's connected to is named Kirklius of Andros. And she says, yes, or she says, or people said about her years later, she says, yes, yeah, I have a husband. His name's Kirklius of Andros. Turns out Kirklius is a really close translation to the slang term for penis. And Andros is really close to the translation for the word man. So she's just like, yes, I'm married to Dick from Man Island, <laughs> is pretty much what she said. So we're pretty sure she's not married to this guy, and it was just a joke. It's just a joke. That she was like, yes, I'm connected to a guy who's that dick over there from Man Island. It's incredible. That, <laughs> I feel like the satire still, or like, it still translates. Yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. sarcasm. Yeah. It was it's pretty, really good. Pretty good sarcasm for it to be 2,500 years old. 
Then there's this other guy that's listed in the Suda. But he is like a mythical guy. Um, his name was Fayon, and apparently she fell in love with him. He rejected her, and so she threw herself off a cliff, taking her own life. Um, which people, again, are pretty sure didn't happen. But because in the centuries after her life, people wanted her to seem deviant or not entirely stable, she's constantly written with this piece being the end of her story. However, we don't actually know how she died. We don't know a lot about this woman, but we do know one thing, and we are getting there. <laughs> okay, she's friends with a lot of women, as I said earlier. Sometimes it's translated as companion. Sometimes it's translated as courtesan. Um, but in order for Sappho to be um, understood in the society of like early Middle Age Europe, they decided to say that Sappho was a school teacher to explain away why she was always around women. But we don't actually know if that's the case. And in fact, we're pretty sure that it's not the case because there's not one in any of her poems or any other book that says that she was a school teacher anywhere. She's also credited with a couple other really cool things. Some of them are the invention of, or the making it very popular, uh, lyric poetry, which they also can call sapphic poetry. It's four long lines, or four lines, three long, and then a short, and they would be sung accompanied by the lyre. And um, she's also famous for creating the plectrum, which was kind of like a pick. So she's credited with the invention of the pick. Um, but that's just kind of the side, side stuff. A lot of her famous lyric poems became so good that at that time in Greece, they were calling Homer of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the poet, and he was writing long epics and they called her the poetess. So she was literally on that level with Homer, who we all know very, very well. Um, her poems were written in Aeoic Greek or Lesbian Greek, and there were 10,000 lines of poetry that we think she did, making eight compilations. Unfortunately, today, we only have 650 lines of her poetry, um, and they find them all the time, like wrapped around mummies and things, because they would use them um, in the mummification process. And uh, the 650 lines come from 250 fragments, and only a third of them are complete. So sometimes we only have a very small section of a sentence, like one of them is, you burn me, or one of them is neither honey nor bee for me. And it's like, we have to really search through and, and look at what did this mean? What's it connected to? Why did she write that? So um, of the six fragments, uh, or of the many fragments we have, six of them are a little bit longer. One is the one we found in 2014 about her brothers. Um, the only one we think is complete is called fragment number one, and it's the Ode to Aphrodite. Um, and it's just beautiful. But the one that many people point to to discuss Sappho and her life living in Lesbos is fragment number 31 called On the Sublime. And in it, she is discussing sitting at a dinner party and she's on one side of the table and this woman that she loves uh, is lusting after is sitting on the other side of the table, but she's not interested in Sappho. She's 
interested in the man sitting next to her. And Sappho is explaining the jealousy in the pit of her stomach and the way that it burns her to see this other person um, just ignore her, this person that she really loves and, and wants to be with, ignore her for this man. But the reason I bring this all up is what happened after she died is why she's so important during Pride Month. She was respected during her life. She was, people were in awe of her. Plato actually wrote, some say the muses are nine, but how carelessly, look at the 10th, Sappho from Lesbos. So people really- People are talking about yes. her. She was a very, very big deal. Um, her contemporaries didn't question her talent. They didn't explain away her relationships with women. But throughout history, we've decided to write and rewrite her story to make it fit the appropriateness of the time. When she was alive, as far as we know, um, Lesbos was an island that was full of passion and poetry and sensuality. However, um, after she died, they, it kind of got a bad reputation and changed to being part of like heathenism and excess or corruption. And in that being the case, the term lesbian in Greek meant you're acting like somebody from Lesbos and specifically connected with one sex act that doesn't connect at all, fellatio. So they start saying that she is lusting after young men because they want to make her seem deviant. And I mean, young men, like very underage. Um, and we know that as time went on, same-sex relationships became taboo in Europe and she fell way out of good graces and people, like I said, kept writing, rewriting her story. We do believe a lot of her work was burned by um, some um, men in the church who wanted to get rid of it, but that wouldn't account for all of it that's been lost. There's been many libraries that have burned. There's been floods. You know, it's very, very old. Um, but by the 18th century, the term sapphic and the term lesbian have become really interchangeable. The first time lesbian was used in writing to describe a woman who's physically or romantically involved with another woman was in 1732. So it's a really old term that we don't all, you know, it seems mm -hmm. that we were talking with Sarah before we started that it's important to show all of this representation in the BC era because it is very old. Um, so even Plato used the word uh, sapphic to describe same-sex lovers in some of his writings that we translated later on. So even though people were trying to reform Sappho's image to make it fit what the culture wanted at the time, she couldn't fit in that box and people kept bringing her out of it. Some of the translations of her poems were actually changed. They took the pronouns and changed the person she was talking about to he instead of she so that she wouldn't seem to be in sex relationships. And how modern is that? Talking about the pronouns that we use to describe people. Today, like I said, Sappho is intrinsically related with the idea of lesbianism. In the early gay rights movement in the United States in 1955, four lesbian couples formed a group named after one of her sets of stories. Two of those women 
became the first same-sex couple to get married in San Francisco in 2004. And um, they used the title of Sappho's work because in 1955, it was still illegal to have a same-sex pairing. So they used it to signal to other people, this is what our group is about without getting themselves in trouble. That group, which became the first lesbian organization in the country, also created a newsletter called The Ladder, and they started to publish pieces of Sappho's poems in all of their newsletters. So, although we actually have no um, evidence of a lot of Sappho's life, her stories intertwined with the labeling of lesbianism as a group and allowing us to see how society's attitudes regarding same-sex couples, female couples, changed over the last 2,500 years. And without her, somebody of her fame and respect and stature, we may not have had that representation in history. And that is Sappho's story. That's incredible. I also, I love the idea of like Sappho's work and just like the idea of continuing, continuing it on because it's existed for so long and people want to deny that. So I yeah. love it. <laughs> it's so very, very cool. And if anybody was really interested in her, there's a really great podcast called Sweet Bitter and it's a Sappho podcast and they break down every line of poetry they have on famous historians to talk about her and the hosts are all oh LGBTQ plus. So, so great. It's a really cool show. I think they, they talk to like a parchment person, like a person who's an expert on just parchment, paper. just paper, just to talk about the fragments and everything. It's an incredible podcast if you really want to get deep into Sappho. <laughs> All right. So I want to know what I'm drinking okay. for you because it's purple. So now it's my turn. Um, so this cocktail is called Q+. So when I was thinking about this drink, I wanted to name it Q+, because I feel like with many historical figures, and like Gladys in particular, it's kind of hard to label them, and like people argue whether or not we like even should, and I just kind of felt like Gladys made her own rules in life. Um, so I kind of feel like out of the LGBTQ plus scenario, she's kind of been like the Q+, like I'm kind of on my own, like doing my thing. Love it. So it is um, two ounces of silver rum, an ounce of papaya juice, and uh, a half an ounce of black liqueur. Um, wait, no, switch those. Half an ounce of papaya <laughs> juice, one ounce of blackberry liqueur, fresh basil, and cream of coconut. And you shake it all together and you garnish it with um, blackberry and a piece of basil. So it's cheers. So pretty. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, any drink with cream of coconut is an A plus for it gets me. It's all foamy at the top. <laughs> I love it. So, what do you know about Gladys Bentley? Um, all I know is that she existed in the time of the Harlem Renaissance, which is like super cool. I'm assuming she either traveled to New York to be there or is from New York. Okay, perfect. Well, she's not from New York. Ah, so why are you learning? <laughs> Um, so I got most of my information from a couple different podcasts, Queer as Fact, who are so good. They have such great, great information. Um, a, a PBS special I watched, um, Hollywood Crime Scene podcast, and then an article that Gladys Bentley wrote in 1952 in Ebony. Ooh. So. Primary sources. Look at you. It's a very contentious source. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to it. <laughs> so Gladys Alberta Bentley was born on August 12th, 1907 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to working class parents, George L. Bentley, who is an American, and Mary Mote, who was from Trinidad. 
So Gladys was the oldest of four children, and she did not have the easiest start in life. Since she was the firstborn, her mother was really disappointed that she wasn't a boy because she felt that girls were fated for trouble. Um, Gladys later said, when they told my mother she had given birth to a girl, she refused to touch me. She wouldn't even nurse me, and my grandmother had to raise me for six months on a bottle before they could persuade my mother to take care of her own baby. It's rough. <laughs> and Poor they Gladys. eventually, I know, they had three more children, and like, I think all of them, if not, you know, at least two of them were boys. Um, but it didn't change the fact that Gladys felt really unwanted. Um... And as she got older, she noticed more things that made her different. When she was 9 or 10, she started to steal her brother's clothes and wear male clothing because she just felt more comfortable in it. And, I mean, but it didn't mean she felt more comfortable around boys, which was the interesting thing. Like, I feel like we want to label someone like that, like a tomboy. But she kind of hated men from a really early age. She once said she naturally recoiled from them. Uh, <laughs> and she also started to feel attracted to women from an early age. She talks specifically about becoming completely infatuated with a teacher she had. She spent all of her time with this teacher, like, go, instead of going out to recess with the other kids. Like, she even said, like, she would just go in there and, like, brush her teacher's hair, which I don't know what this teacher was doing, but that's pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she would have dreams about her at night. She just, like, didn't understand why this was happening until a little bit later. So... She's having these feelings. She's dressing in boys' clothes. She doesn't really hang out with other kids. And this is just unacceptable in the early 1900s and unfortunately still acceptable in some families now. Um, so her parents took action and they started taking her to doctors hoping to cure her. Uh, later she said, I think they meant well, but I didn't need a doctor. I needed love and affection. It was so sad. Um, but she wasn't going to get that from her family, unfortunately. So in 1923, when she was 16, she packed her things and moved to New York City during the Harlem Renaissance to become a musician. And what a fantastic time to be a young musician in Harlem. It's just incredible. Mm. So obviously, the North had just experienced the Great Migration, and Black culture is absolutely thriving. And it's great because, like, I was listening to a lot of, like, shows about it and they're like talking about how instead of being like pigeonholed into performing minstrel shows for white audiences they were able to just like write their own stories and music and poetry and perform on their own terms and in their own clubs which is like something they just had never been able to do before and it's also a particularly good time to be queer because prohibition is going on and basically when all the bars moved underground they could get a little more fun <laughs> so artists and po like po poetry people poets poets, poets. that's the word <laughs> <laughs> they're playing around with gender and sexuality and just doing what feels good i mean there was a place called the hamilton lodge where there have been drag balls going on since 1869 <laughs> That's great. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there was still, like, a great deal of pushback, especially from, like, religious organizations in the area. But all in all, Gladys seemed pretty free to express herself. So she's bopping around New York for a couple years, trying to get her music career going. And she initially started performing at rent parties, which were these parties basically where, like, a group of tenants would get together and they would hire a musician, they'd get a bunch of booze and they'd sell tickets and pass around a donation hat 
and just basically like dance all night raising money for their rent to pay rent. Yeah. That's great. And I want to do that now. <laughs> I only wanted to bring this up because apparently it's when where the Lindy Hop was invented, which mm. I think is really cool. <laughs> um, so she's performing around town and she's getting a name for herself. People love her. And then in 1925, this club posted that they were looking for a male piano player. And she went in and told them, well, I think it's about time you hired a female piano player. And she then proceeded to dazzle them with her piano and singing skills. And (laughs) she got the job. And her career just took off from there. And she is headlining at clubs and theaters all over Harlem. But her real home was a place called the Clam House, which I love that name. And according to Langston Hughes, who was a big, prominent person in the scene, obviously, um, he loved Gladys Bentley. And he was like, she would play from 10 p.m. until dawn, which I don't understand. I, I'm in bed at 10 p.m. That's outrageous. Yeah. Um, and she started off making $35 a week oh and quickly bumped that up to $125 a week. That's like a huge raise. And like not <laughs> including tips. So she's also making tips every performance. So if you think about it, there is a black queer woman making $1,200 a week as an artist in the 1920s. That's incredible. It's incredible. But it makes sense because you couldn't see anyone else like Gladys. Her performances were really unique because of her talent and her energy and, of course, her crisp white tuxedos and her incredibly dirty song lyrics. Um, so she was kind of the weird Al Yankovic of her times. Ew. She would, <laughs> she would play popular songs that everyone knew and then improvise dirty lyrics, like, into the songs. Um, and when I say dirty, I mean, like, really dirty. Um, so she wants to a mashup of Sweet Georgia Brown and My Alice Blue Gown, but made it about anal sex. And the lyrics went a little something like this. And he said, dearie, please turn me around. And then he shoved that big thing up my brown. He tore it. I bore it. Lord, how I adored it. My sweet little Alice blue gown. So people are (laughs) upset about WAP, right? (laughs) And here's Gladys Bentley just being absolutely insane. I mean, I was like... Can I say this? I don't know. (laughs) I went to Christian school. Can I even say these words? But she was absolutely wild. And I just wish we had recordings of these Mm. live shows. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was no like handheld recording devices or anything like that. Mm. And also, it's kind of accepted that the songs were just too dirty to record, which I totally get. And then others say that it also might have had something to do with copyright issues. And she was doing a lot of like mashups and covers. Okay. So, though Gladys would go on to record many albums, we don't have anything from her on stage, which is a real shame because it's really where she thrived um, because she was above all else a performer and she was becoming more comfortable expressing her gender identity and sexuality on stage. Like, she was not trying to hide the fact that she liked wearing men's clothes, but she was a woman Mm -hmm. and that she was attracted to other women. And there were other artists who were doing this at this time, like Alberta Hunter and Ma Rainey. I mean, Ma Rainey has this very famous song. And when she said, I went out last night with a crowd of my friends, they must have been women because I don't like no men. (laughs) (laughs) And another signature of Gladys's performances was her crowd work. She was constantly flirting with women in the crowd during her act. So she is making quite a statement and she's becoming incredibly famous in Harlem. 
And then her career starts to expand outside of Harlem. She's traveling all over the country, playing piano and jazz and clubs just everywhere. And her act gets a lot bigger. So she is soon joined by a chorus of 40 to 50. And this is the term that was used, pansies. Um, So this was how they were referred to at the time. So these were kind of like effeminate male performers. And sometimes they would be in drag. Sometimes they would be sexy sailors. And there's Gladys just still in her tuxedos singing lyrics such as, nothing now perplexes like the sexes because when you see them switch, you can't tell which is which. And in 1928, she got a record deal with OK Records and recorded her first album. Uh, Of course, it didn't really reflect her live performance and it didn't reflect her sexuality. She had to kind of clean up the lyrics and make them a little more safe and heterosexual to make people feel more comfortable. Um, And in 1930, she got her own weekly radio show and then she opened up a club of her own called Barbara's Exclusive Club. Um, And this is around when she would also use um, the names Barbara Bobby Minton or just Bobby Minton. So Mm -hmm. she, a lot of people also... um, kind of claim her as like an early like drag king as well, like with these different personas. Um, and then in 1931, she is said to have married a wealthy white woman hmm. in a civil ceremony where all good things happen, Atlantic City, New Jersey. We don't know this woman's name. We don't know what kind of documents they signed. We don't know how long they were married or even if it actually happened. <laughs> but like, People say that it happened, and then people said that she came home and lived with her wife in a Park Avenue apartment that Gladys owned, because she's making so much fucking money. Everything's legal in New Jersey. Apparently. (laughs) So, she's having a good time. Um, But in 1933, things take a turn when prohibition was repealed, and all of the bars and clubs have to kind of resurface. And the State Liquor Authority is established in New York, and it becomes their job to make sure that no one is having fun anymore. (laughs) Um, And when places like the Clam House kind of, like, come up for air, uh, people are shocked and appalled by what's going on at this establishment, as well as many others that Gladys is performing at. And unfortunately, they start closing down. Mm. And so what ends up happening is if you're a club owner and they find Gladys performing at your club, you get slapped with a huge fine. And this kind of makes clubs not want to hire her anymore because it's a huge liability. So she starts losing out on some work. And then the clubs that keep hiring her keep getting slapped with these fines and then eventually get closed down for moral depravity. But she keeps performing when and where she can. And she does get hired to headline at this new place called the Ubangi Club. Now, some people kind of felt like she sold out at this point um, because the Ubangi Club was a club that catered more to white audiences. So there were even rumors that they turned away black clientele and exploited the exotification of a lot of black and queer people, you know, for their own like profit and like white people's enjoyment, which we know did happen a lot during this time. Right. And I definitely don't want to excuse any of these actions, um, but there's also, you know, not much record. Like, I couldn't find too much on it, just people saying it. Mm. Um, And Gladys never talked ill of her time there, so I don't know. But she was there for three years, and we do know, though, that there was a steady de-queering of her act. She started going by the queen instead of the king, and her lyrics got a little more tame, and her flamboyant male background dancers were replaced with a traditional chorus line of women. 
Boring. Super boring. <laughs> <laughs> Get the rock hats out of here. Exactly. Uh, but it still wasn't enough to satisfy the liquor board, and even the Ubangi Club was shut down in 1937. Mm. So in 1938, she's kind of feeling like her time in New York is coming to a close. So she moves to Los Angeles, California. <laughs> And she's able to find a home in some queer clubs on the West Coast. And from 1940 to 1945, she is a regular performer at this openly lesbian club called Mona's, where she felt right at home because all of the waitresses wore tuxedos. She's like, I love this. Um, But by the time she's really getting her career back on track in California, it is time for another devastating moment in queer history, McCarthyism. So, in the midst of the famous Red Scare, there was the Lavender Scare, where, of course, gay people were being targeted because they were seen as perverts and threats to national security and communists and every bad name you could throw at them. So, there was a crackdown on openly queer folks, and it was just ramping up. So, there was a real pushback on the clubs, and they started shutting down again. She was like, it just felt like the, you know, state liquor board again, all over again, but now there's Asshole McCarthy involved. It's like deja vu. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they even made her get a permit from the state of California just to wear pants on stage. Far cry from the wow. freely worn tuxedos of a couple <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so her career at this point now is really in jeopardy again. So in the 1950s, she decided to reinvent herself by taking her tuxedos and top hats off and wearing jewelry and dresses and skirts again. And then she took it a step further and wrote an article for Ebony Magazine in 1952 called I Am a Woman Again. In this article, she basically details her whole life and openly admits to cross-dressing and same-sex relationships, but makes it clear that it was very wrong. And then she praises the advancement of medical research and hormone therapy, which has allowed her to become a woman again and escape the dark recesses of the sex underworld. So this is like peer pressure. So she's not like on the streets. Yeah. Okay. And like, it's also just like, she has to do something. She's a public person. And I mm. felt like, I think she felt really like backed into a corner to go, no, I'm straight. I promise. <sighs> And she gives a lot of the credit for her new life to a man named Don. Um, We don't know who this Don is, but she said she met him in California, and she felt confused as to why she was allowing this normal man to pay attention to her. She's like, I've never done this before. Are you sure his name's not Dick of Man I Yeah. (laughs) That was his other name. Um, But they grew to be really close, and after a long time of being friends, which, like, I'm... I kind of get the feeling that they were just good friends and he was like, we should get married. And she was like, no fucking thank you. Um, But then she like says like, she like allowed him to kiss her and she was like, you know, uh, I'm still not into this. So you know what I'm going to do? I do want to marry you, Don. I do want to marry you. So she went to the doctors and they told her your sex organs are infantile they haven't progressed past the stage of those of a 14-year-old child. So to combat this deformity that was causing her same-sex attraction, they started giving her three times a week estrogen injections for six months. Oh, wow. Now, of course, hormone treatment and things like that are like lifesavers for people who want to be their true self and transition, but it kind of seems like 
she was doing it to run away from herself and like force herself to marry this man. Right. So she does this, they get married and they split up after like just a couple months. Then she meets another man, a columnist named J.T. Gibson. And, you know, this is all in the article that she wrote. And she publishes in this article that they're married and very happy. But one month before the article, J.T. actually passed away. Um, It just said he had, like, something happen while he was parking his car. So we don't really know. Um, But Forensic files on the case. Forensic files, exactly. (laughs) But uh, his obituary listed him as the husband of Gladys Bentley. But apparently before he died, he was like, no, I'm not. And then his family was like, no, he's not. (laughs) And there's no certificate ever found. So I really don't know. But then there are these pictures in this article of her, like, making the bed for JT and cooking dinner for JT. And, like, you know, she's in a dress and pearls. And there's even one of her just, like, looking at her pearls in the... In the mirror, being like, I'm a lady, I promise. <laughs> and it all just seemed a bit staged. And I also think it's important to mention that this article was featured in the self-help section of this magazine. So it was kind of meant to, like, kind of scare, like, young other queer people into mm. rejecting their identity um, and, you know, divert themselves from their sinful ways. Mm. And it's really hard to digest this article and what it means. And, like, maybe she meant it. For real, maybe she was just trying anything not to be persecuted and arrested and targeted and just to get her career back. And, uh, you know, I don't know her reasons exactly, but she did work some after this. Um, She even appeared as a contestant on You Bet Your Life, where she talked with Groucho Marx before (laughs) hopping on the piano and singing Them Their Eyes. And I'm glad that she did end up doing that because it's one of the only videos we have of her. And although she's not giving her normal performance, you can really see how just talented she is. Right. So in 1952, after the Ebony article came out and JT died, Gladys did marry again. Um, So (laughs) with the first three marriages to Mystery Woman, Don, and JT, people debate on whether these were even real or not. Like, people really aren't sure. Um, but with this one, we have definitive proof. We have pictures. They went to Mexico on their honeymoon. This really did happen. His name was Charles Roberts, and they were married for about five months before splitting up. And I think by this time, she really is frustrated. She doesn't feel like she can go back to her queer lifestyle. Marrying men is really not going well. So she decides to retreat to the church. And in the final act of her life, Gladys started training to become a minister. Wow. But, which is another thing that I was like, are women even allowed to do that in the 50s? I don't know. <laughs> but right before she was officially ordained, Gladys passed away on January 18th, 1960, at the age of 52. That was super sudden. Super sudden. From pneumonia. I know. Just came in and got her. It's oh terrible. My goodness. Don't go out in the cold. I know. <laughs> so... I just, I think her story is important because I think it's really easy to look up to people who were just themselves their whole life and out and proud. But I also think these types of stories are important. Those people who came out and then are kind of pushed back in. I just, I think that they also deserve to be seen and heard. And I'm just grateful that she existed at all to inspire people who now, thanks to her, have the opportunity for a better life. Mm. So that's the story of Gladys Bentley. I love that. Okay. 
So now we're going to talk about the two of them together in conversation Mm -hmm. in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. However, this time you guys can help if you want to. You can type out any similarity that you think you saw, and then I want you to pick one, and I'll pick Ooh, one. Okay. Like, the big similarity you thought between them. Okay, because it's hard because I took so many notes, actually. I know, I, <laughs> I know, found these too. women had a lot in common. They did, more than I thought they would. More than I thought they yeah. would. Um, and I think the main thing that I found interesting is that they were both, like, really respected in their heyday. Mm. And uh, then they were quickly rejected. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, these women were headliners. They were famous. They were being talked about by other famous people. And then all of a sudden, when it's suddenly like, oh, that's taboo. It's not okay. They're just totally pushed to the sidelines. Right. And, like, all of a sudden, it's like, no, you're not allowed to say that. Like, you can't think that. You can't love like that. Like, it's really frustrating. Yeah, it's like they were in the middle of, like, everybody's everyday vernacular and then they became so famous that people were uncomfortable with them being famous. I'm surprised Carrie Nation didn't come in and, like, chop down the bars (laughs) that she was dealing with. Let's see. Oh, yeah. The feeling the social pressures to be normal. Yes. Uh, I absolutely agree. Like, wanting to blend in with the people around you. No, absolutely. And the culture. Well, and also then being painted as, like, unstable if you don't. Yeah. Like, I feel like they both were kind of painted as Like, deviants. Like, you're yeah. from a deep. Not only you're a deviant, but you're from, like, a deviant place. No, absolutely. And, yes, you're right. They're both being artists and performers is yeah. really a really interesting part of it. The Harlem Renaissance is just known for the amount of art that it put out into the world that like we're Mm -hmm. still benefiting from and I think ancient Greece is known as that for poetry oh yeah like the way that we structure poems and all of the different like meters that we use for Mm -hmm. writing comes like directly from Greece yeah so it's cool how even not only them themselves but the areas they live Mm -hmm. really like put out into the world a lot of art yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's really cool that they both made a living at it, which, like, people have a hard time today doing. Right. Like, they were both successful and paid artists. <laughs> yeah. And they were both reinvented multiple times. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting one over yeah. and over again. It was like, okay, well, now we're going to see you as this person because this is what we're comfortable with. And now we're going to see you as this person because this is what we're comfortable with. No, absolutely. And also, I feel like there's kind of this element of, like, how much of this story is true? Because <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. I feel like, obviously, Sappho was very, like, ancient. And, you know, it's kind of easy to, you know, kind of retranslate things. Mm-hmm. And I felt that with Gladys's story. Like, I felt like at the end she was so scrambling to try and prove mm-hmm. that she was something that she wasn't. Um, and then, like, who knows if some of these husbands, like, really existed or were true you know like there's a lot of doubt because like there's only one official like marriage certificate you know and like there are people saying like I was never married to her like yeah the records are really limited and the same is true of Sappho like not having all of her poems we don't have what she wrote we have every once in a while once every five ten years somebody's Mm -hmm. finding like a minuscule piece Right. Of poetry that they're like, we got another one. Yeah. <laughs> and they got to like puzzle piece it into the ripped up stuff they already have. And it sounds yeah. like, you know, we don't have her on video doing what she was good at. We yeah. just have to kind of read about it and piece it together with this one thing that she wrote, this one marriage certificate and this one recording that's not right. even really her show. Right. Exactly. And then just like the words from other people, like, you know, they're, and I think that that's also the problem with like 
labeling people as like, you know, there was one woman that was like, oh, like, no, like she was totally like bisexual, but that's just kind of secondhand, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, really? Cause it kind of sounded like she really was not into dudes. <laughs> well, I mean, and I don't know though. Like maybe she, I don't know. So people could do, I mean, I'm sure there is, but like yeah. people could do an entire podcast on the history of labeling. Like oh, yeah. easy because then you have like ace people and aromantic people who you don't really see that throughout history mm-hmm. because they just didn't get married. And right. then we don't have... And then we just lose their records. Right. The record's gone. We don't know what they were going through. It's just yeah. like, this didn't happen. Yeah. Well, and we also, we talk a lot about names on this podcast. And I think it's cool that they both retained their their names and their image is so tied to their names. Because like, like we were just talking about, you know, like women get lost to history because they get married and then we lose their last name because it becomes their husband's name. And that just didn't happen for either of them, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Um, and you're right, both of their writing was scandalous um, was. for when they existed. And it, it's interesting, too, because people like Langston Hughes and Plato were like, get it. Right. And love it. Keep going. But everybody else was like, yeah. <laughs> can't do but, that. But also, they secretly love it. Like, yeah. people went to see Gladys perform. They might not buy the record and mm-hmm. play it in their house, but they are going to see her perform because they are so, like, tickled by the fact that this woman is just outright singing about anal sex. Like, it's blowing their minds and they love it, but they don't want to admit they love it. I want somebody to walk down the aisle to that. <laughs> Gladys. Well, my wedding's coming up in October, so maybe. Gladys, um, Okay, are you ready to toast these women? I am ready. Hallie, who would you like to toast this evening? So, I want to toast... In general, finding queer history. Yeah. I think it's really inspiring to look so far into the past and connect the dots of um, just queer culture. Uh, regardless of who Sappho actually was as a person, she really is a guidepost for us to build history on, like the mm. base of a pyramid, um, so much so that our words today are built off of where she literally lived. Mm-hmm. So... Cheers to Sappho and Cheers. finding history. Hmm. And to all of you. All of you. <laughs> <laughs> what toast do you have for us? I am going to toast people who make their own rules. I just feel like when Gladys was in her heyday, she was breaking all sorts of barriers and living her life exactly how she pleased. And I wish she had been able to enjoy that freedom for the rest of her life, but because of her bravery back then more people are safe to do so now and they feel really seen even if it was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So cheers. Cheers. <laughs> cheers everybody. So now we usually do a part where we promote something we're doing this week. Are you doing anything cool right now? Uh I mean there's a cool Instagram that I like called Looney Tunes Backgrounds. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is it like the red circles? It's like that's all. That no. Was, so <laughs> And it's not really lame, but it's a podcast. No, it's not a podcast. It's an Instagram. And it basically, they take stills from just the backgrounds of Looney Tune cartoons, and they are beautiful. Like, the artwork in them is insane, and there's no characters in them. It's just the background art, and it's really relaxing to look at, and the colors are so good. <laughs> that's um, cool. So that's, that's my 
thing that I'm interested in this week. <laughs> That's fun. This week I'm really into the show Alone. If anybody's watched oh. Alone, um, people just go and are, like, these are like real survival people. And they're just like put out in the woods and then they're competing against each other to see who can live there the longest. Except you don't know when the other people leave. So. Oh, I heard about this because the one guy who won, like just didn't know until like his like yeah. wife walked out and it was just yeah yeah here's why i'm so into it though it's bikini season and those people lose all of their weight in like 25 days and i'm like maybe i should just go live in the woods for 25 days and then i'll go to the beach and producer was like yeah go ahead yeah how long you last i would not last is the answer um but I don't even know how to use a jet foil Um, what (laughs) a jet foil little thing the camping thing I have like, one. Is that a fire? No, it's like a little carrot. It's like a little gas oh, container. Oh, you can't bring anything. Then, with you, you can't bring anything. Well, there's like specific things you can bring. You get like a tarp, a fishing okay. net. Okay. Well, that's good. It's really intense. Um, but yeah, the classical music and Looney Tunes <laughs> also very good. <laughs> and alone is legit. Ooh, what are your thoughts on the new Space Jam? Okay. Okay. Can't wait. I just want to see Lo- I want to see Lola Bunny all over again, reimagined. Well, and that's the thing. I know people are like upset because she's not like as sexy as she once was or whatever, but like she's I, reflecting like just like how like some girls look playing basketball. <laughs> I love when she puts her little ears in a scrunchie. I like when she, I like when she has like the fitness sleeve yeah. on. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, girl, protect your muscles. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Ooh. Favorite part of Alone, when the contestant gives a fact, and then the show cracks <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, on the bottom of the screen. <laughs> yes, 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 because they all, that's what we need for our podcast. It's true. <laughs> we give a fact, and then somebody comes in we and We should probably like, have, like, a fact check session at the end. Oh. We're like, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us this evening. You can find us everywhere. All of the social medias. Um, we're on, yeah, Instagram and Patreon and uh, Facebook. Uh, mainly we're on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, those are our two favorite. Yeah, I post every day on Facebook, but when you have a business page on Facebook, it doesn't pop up on everybody's timeline. It's very quirky. Interesting. Well, thank you again. Um, and you can find us every Thursday at Herster on the Rocks, everywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to uh, listen to more episodes, we have covered a lot of women. Yeah, we're on episode, <laughs> I think, like 130 right now. Yeah. So, and it's two women an episode. So it's yeah. quite a Two bit. women, two cocktails an episode. Sometimes we're drunker than others. Mm-hmm. Um, the episode of... Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Minnie Mouse went about three hours and it was a real hot mess. So probably don't listen to that one. First. I fell off my chair. But, uh, <laughs> while it was recording. but you'll learn a lot about women and you'll have a good time. So yeah. Thank you guys again. This is great. <laughs> story on
on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.